Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Today, we're going to be looking at the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we're going to look at it both briefly as a miracle, but also as an example of ministry. How does Jesus use the miracle and the context of the miracle to minister to his disciples and also to minister to the people as well? For those of you who don't know me, I'm Elder Bruce. I'm a history professor at NUS. And in my lectures, in my lectures at school, I, I'm always teaching history, and so in my sermons here at Carmel, there's usually some history as well, and you will be getting a couple of bits of history today in this sermon. But let's start with prayer. Father God, we thank you that even we, though we cannot be physically together, that we can still gather together uh, in different places to think about your word. Lord, as we look today at one of the miracles that your son Jesus performed, I just pray that we would be able to look at it, to believe it, and to understand what it has to teach us. We commit this time to you, and we pray in your name. Amen. Like many of the miracles and parables in the Gospels, the uh, story of the feeding of the 5,000 is told in a couple of different places. So we have one version today in Mark, and then we also have a version in Matthew 14. And then we have a very similar miracle, which is the miracle of feeding the 4,000. That one is found later on in Mark 8, and I believe Pastor Liangwei will be teaching about that in a couple of weeks' time. And it is also found in Matthew 15. Probably the most fundamental question that we're going to ask ourselves when we read this miracle, when we read about this miracle or any of the miracles in the, the Gospels particularly, is can we believe this story? Can we take miracles seriously? If you look at the history of Christianity, for centuries and centuries, no one ever really questioned this. Up until probably the 17th century, virtually everyone who read the stories uh, in the Gospels, in books of Acts, who read about the miracles would have said, can, no problem. People lived very much in a supernatural world. They lived very much in a world, uh, a worldview that was dominated by God. And really, virtually no one would have any problem believing these miracles. But when we get to the 17th and 18th century, we have the beginnings of what really comes to be called skepticism, uh, sort of formal or informal doubts about certain aspects of the Bible, about the truth of the miracles, and eventually about God himself. And there were several factors that were behind this rise of skepticism. And these are all factors which very much shape the way that many people think today in the 21st century. The first was the gradual secularization of science. Science initially was seen very much by all scientists, people like Isaac Newton, in spiritual terms. Science was seen as uh, understanding God's word, exploring God's creation. But over time, there gradually came to be a kind of separation between science on the one hand and religion or faith on the other hand. So that over time, particularly by the 18th century, some people in the West began to reject the idea of miracles as unscientific. A second factor was what came to be known as deism, particularly during Enlightenment in the 18th century. Many of you may be familiar with this idea of deism, essentially what's often called the watchmaker perspective, the idea that God created the world and kind of wound it up like a watch or a clock, but then after that he was never involved with it again. 
And so if you diminish God to the role of a creator and you do not really believe that he is actively intervening in the world, in people's lives from day to day, it makes it harder to take the miracles as something true. And a third point is that by this point in time, by the 18th century, many thinkers in the West made a very clear distinction between faith as a category and reason as a category. And there were certain things that it believed that you could be proved by reasoning them out. For example, the existence of God. The existence of God at this point in time was still taken by most people as something reasonable. But when you went beyond the existence of God, when you looked at things like the resurrection, or you looked at things, at stories like the miracles in the Gospels, these were things that had to be taken on faith, and not everyone was prepared to do that. And so the result was that particularly by the 18th century, by the Enlightenment, many people were trying to really to strip, to strip Christianity of the miraculous. And the idea was that you could look at the Bible, you could believe in God, you could take stories about Jesus as a teacher, as a moral teacher, but you had to take out the miracles in order for it to be credible. And this is the Christianity that a certain number of people embrace even today that they would see if they believe in God, uh, they would perhaps see him as a creator, uh, if they, uh, t they would accept Jesus as a teacher, perhaps as a prophet or philosopher, but not as a doer of miracles. But for us as who really call ourselves Christians, even in the 21st century, I think we have to be able to say that we can believe this miracle, and as well as the other miracles that we've been looking at in the Gospels. Now, the question is, if you ask any of us to explain, how did Jesus accomplish this miracle? How did he feed the 5,000? How did he feed the 4,000? We can't really explain it. Uh, I, many of uh, people may not know it, but I'm actually a very hardcore Trekkie. I love Star Trek. And uh, if you are a Star Trek fan, you will know that beginning with the second Star Trek series, uh, that they had something, technology called a replicator. And a replicator produces on board ship anything that you need to use. Uh, Captain Picard just goes to the replicator, says uh, Earl Grey tea hot, and he gets his Earl Grey tea hot. Now, I don't think that Jesus had a replicator, but obviously he was able to create food, the food for 5,000 out of nothing. This is a very different kind of miracle from the miracles that we have been looking at. Pastor David preached a couple of weeks ago on miracles of healing and on the miracles of deliverance. Those are miracles that can be achieved now, that through the power of Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, we can see happening in our lives and other people's lives. The replication or the production of the food for the 5,000, I think is something that we are not likely to see. This is, uh, this is a kind of event that probably God does not need to repeat in most situations now. But two points that we can make about miracles. One, and I think this may have originally made, been made by C.S. Lewis in uh, some of his writings on miracles. People will oppose, and, and in the Enlightenment, people began to oppose the ideas of miracles, the idea of miracles, by saying that these go against the law of nature. But the point is that God created the laws of nature. And if God created the laws of nature, then he can also break them.
And so if we, if we really believe that God is in control, that God has created everything, that God controls nature, controls the natural world, then we can accept that uh, God would occasionally be able to bend or even break his own laws to produce something out of nothing, to make changes that no other power could make. Secondly, think about the resurrection. The resurrection is the ultimate example of a law of nature being broken. And God broke, essentially, the law of, of death. He broke the spiritual law of death, and he also broke the physical law of death. And I believe that most of us, if, if we really consider ourselves to be Christians, we will accept the resurrection as a fact. I certainly do. If we accept the resurrection as a fact, and as if we can accept that kind of miracle, then I think we can accept the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000 as well. And I believe that when we read the Gospels, we don't need to kind of cheapen them or dilute them by saying that, well, these are just stories uh, that are made up in order to, to make Jesus look better. So that is the point we want to understand about, the first point we want to understand about the miracle, that yes, we can believe the story. What, what did Jesus want his disciples to get out of, the, uh, out of this miracle besides physical sustenance? If we jump ahead to Mark 8, verses 14 to 21, and again, uh, Pastor Liangwei will be preaching about this in a couple of weeks, the disciples came to Jesus again. This is, I think, between the feeding of the first miracle and the second miracle, and or just after it. And the disciples said, hey, Chuck, bread no more already. Okay? We, our bread, we need bread. And first, Jesus, in his usual kind of indirect, confusing way, he tells them to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And they say, hey, is this because we, we have no bread? And then he says, well, why are you talking about having no bread? When I fed the 5,000, how much was left over? When I fed the 4,000, how much was left over? And as usual, Jesus had to spell out pretty clearly the lesson that he wanted his disciples to learn and the lesson that, at least one of the lessons that he wants us to learn as well. And I think the main point he wanted to make is that your material needs are covered and I take care of them, and God takes care of them. So it's not that they're not important, but you should not be obsessed by the physical needs and focus on the spiritual issues. And that, I think, when we look at any one of the miracles that Jesus did, this is ultimately a lesson that we can take for ourselves. It is a reminder of the spiritual power of God, that the spiritual power of God is stronger than anything else, and that ultimately he will use that spiritual power to take care of us and to take care of our needs. Having said that, I want to go on and look to see, look at three ways in which I think that this miracle speaks to us about Jesus' ministry and in terms about our own ministry. Now, when we're studying the Bible, we're often told that we should take Jesus as our model. And I don't know about you, but I find that very difficult to do in many ways. I certainly don't have Jesus' character. I don't have his patience. I have his degree of love. Don't have his degree of love. But 
that doesn't mean that we still can't learn from Jesus. And I, when I, I sat down and looked at this passage in preparing the sermon today, uh, I saw three very concrete lessons that we can take from Jesus for our own personal ministry. The first, a very basic one, is that when we are doing ministry, we need to take care of ourselves. If we look at verses 31 and 32, it says, Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. This is very important, because whether we are engaged in full-time ministry, whether we're engaged in part-time ministry as lay, lay people, it is very easy to get worn out. Ministry activities may certainly bring fatigue, but we should try very hard to avoid um, serving God, ministering to others to the point of being exhausted or being ill. I remember many, many years ago when I was living in Bangkok and at a, attending international church there, there was a pastor from Australia who gave a sermon. And I mean, this is more than 25 years later, and I still remember uh, how this, this particular point that he made. He's, he was talking about how back in Australia at one point in his life, he was basically running himself into the ground. And he wanted to be Superman, doing everything for God, and running on his own energy, not giving himself time to rest. And I don't know, something happened to him physically. He said, God knocked me flat on my back and kept me flat on my back for several weeks until I learned this lesson. And I think this is very important for us, that we sometimes we want to sort of be Superman or Superwoman. We want to show how much we can do. We want to chung for God and even you know put ourselves into a sick room or wear ourselves down to show how much we can do from God for God. This is not what he wants for us. And just as Jesus took time for rest, for nourishment for himself and for his disciples, we need to do the same. Rest is not slacking. If we, we take time to rest, we take time out from our other ministry and service activities to rest, it's not slacking. It is refreshing ourselves to go on ministering and serving. A worn out servant cannot serve effectively. And so I think this is the, the first lesson that we really want to take away from this story, is that Jesus himself demonstrates the importance of rest and physical nourishment for himself and for his followers. The second ministry lesson is that Jesus is very concerned about this, the physical needs of the people that he's ministering to, not just their spiritual needs. The tension between ministering to people's physical needs and um, evangelizing their spiritual needs, this is a tension that has been around in Christianity for a bit more than a hundred years, and I'd like us to think a little bit about this. For hundreds of years, it was without, it was simply went without saying that Christians ministered to other people's physical needs. For a long time in the West, many of the hospitals were run by, by Christians, um, first by the Catholic Church, later by Protestants. One of the, the uh, oldest hospitals in the West is the Hôtel Dieu in Paris, which basically means the Hostel of God. So 
for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Christians were focusing, did ministry that met, that focused on people's physical and spiritual needs. If you look at the 19th century British evangelicals, and there were a very famous group of them, many of them came from the upper class, they were tackling issues in Britain like slavery, alcoholism, uh, the abuse of, of workers under the Industrial Revolution. And they certainly were concerned with spiritual needs, with evangelism, but they were also very concerned with meeting physical needs as well. An excellent example for us is the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army, ever since its inception, has always combined ministering to the physical needs of the poor and providing support for them, but also providing um, spiritual support and evangelizing them as well. Why is it that in the 20th and 21st century, we began to have a certain tension within Christians, among Christians, between those who thought that physical needs were more important and those who thought that spiritual needs were more important? This goes back to a movement or a concept called the social gospel which began in the late 19th and early 20th century and began largely in America. The Christians who followed the social gospel came to feel that there were so many economic and social problems in American society that they really needed to prioritize the physical needs of people and dealing with things like inequality, dealing with uh, various kinds of of non-spiritual needs, and that these became more important in their eyes than evangelism. This led to a very big division within American Christians, particularly, which gradually spread to some other areas of the world as well. So you would have, for example, some, uh, let's say if the Salvation Army was running a hostel or a soup kitchen, they would be meet, continue to meet physical needs and spiritual needs. But some churches would run soup kitchens simply to feed people, and they were, less, they were more concerned about their physical needs than about their spiritual needs. And so this actually began to penetrate even into missions overseas. And if you know anything about the history of missions in China, you know that this was an area, this was one place that was affected. In the 20th century, missions and missionaries in China began to become divided between the more liberal faction that basically said, look, we'll just have um, education and we'll have hospitals and we'll help people, but we're not so concerned about evangelism. And then you had those who continued to be focused on evangelism itself. Because what ultimately happened, and I think it's rather a sad thing in some ways, is that in reaction to the social gospel, many conservative Christians began to take the position that we will only evangelize people. We will, when I look at a person, I will only see their spiritual needs. Their physical needs are not important, and their physical needs can be handled by somebody else. What they need to hear is the word of God, and that is my priority. Now, obviously, that too, to say that they need to hear the word of God, that's not wrong. But if we look at what Jesus does... It's very clear that he, in this story and in other stories, he does not prioritize physical needs over spiritual needs. He wants to meet both. Look at the examples of the healing, as well as the examples that we have here of the feeding. Jesus is targeting both physical needs and spiritual needs. 
Now, some people will perhaps quote, go back to Matthew 6, 25 to 6, the quote, uh, quote, the verses about not worrying about food or drink because your heavenly Father takes care of them. This is a verse that I think can be misinterpreted. It is meant to tell us that, broadly speaking, God is taking care of us and God provides for our needs. But it's not saying that at an individual level these things aren't important. We need to be, when we are trying to minister to people, we need to be conscious of their physical needs. We need to be conscious of their emotional needs as well as their spiritual needs. Meeting the physical needs and emotional needs opens the door to meeting their spiritual needs. An excellent example of this right here in, in Carmel is the medical ministry that we have in the villages of Cambodia. You don't go over, Carmelites don't go over and, and do dentistry work and, and um, health work just in order to evangelize. They do it because those things are important for those people and at the same time it opens a door for those people to hear the gospel. So. We want to keep in mind that whether we're talking about what we could call compassion ministry at home, uh, ministry to the homeless, various kinds of ministries here in Singapore, or what we can call development ministry overseas, uh, to, these are very important. Development ministry, development ministry is Christians doing work like agricultural work, public health, teaching uh, in uh, places overseas. This is what I myself did in Laos for, for three years. Uh, particularly in countries that are um, not really completely closed, but not really open to missionaries, you are going and you are ministering to different kinds of needs in order to try to reach out to people. So the, f the, the, the key second lesson that we want to get from Jesus here is that physical needs are important along with spiritual needs. The third lesson and final lesson is compassion. Jesus looks out at the flock. He looks out at the crowds, and he feels compassion for them. I would argue that compassion for everyone is the basis for Jesus' ministry. With the exception of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, whom he denounces as hypocrites, Jesus shows compassion for virtually every single person that he ministers to. And there are several questions that we want to ask ourselves. First of all, can we share with someone without caring for them? I know that some people call, feel called to go out and do uh, street evangelism, and if they, are, if they are called to do this, I think that that's fine. But at the same time, we want to recognize that just coming up and sharing the gospel with uh, someone that you don't know and someone who doesn't know you, it's often not going to be very effective it's very difficult to show that person that you really care about them just in a brief conversation as a stranger. So I think in many cases, if we really want to share with someone, we have to be able to, to care for them, to care about them as a person, and not just to see them as targets of evangelism. Second, going beyond sharing and to really think in terms of ministry. Can we minister to someone without trying to know them and understand them. I do a lot of ministry among my students at NUS, as, as most people know. And all of that ministry is based on getting to know the student and understanding where they're coming from. If we really want to try to touch someone's life, 
if we want to we want to be able to speak truth into their lives we have to know as much as possible about who they are as a person and we have to understand what they're dealing with and again compassion is the key here i really believe i believe as a teacher it's the most important part one of the most important parts most effective a part of being a teacher is feeling a love for my students and if i'm in a classroom where i look at that group of students and i really don't feel anything for them i don't think i would be able to be an effective teacher similarly if we really want to minister to someone we have to care for them we have to feel compassion for them now ideally we're told we should all always love right because jesus loved everyone we know that there are a lot of people in our lives that it may be difficult to love they're not lovable if we can't love them we can at least feel compassion for them and this is what i when i in mentor people and when i talk to them about trying to basically how to tahan people who are very difficult to tahan most people if they are not very lovable if they're difficult it is for reason particular reasons it's because they've been through something in their lives they may be dealing with bitterness they may be dealing with anger with those people i try very hard to at least feel some kind of compassion or understanding for them and if i don't feel it i will pray god to give it to me so i believe that any time we want to share with someone any time we want to minister to someone any time we want to reach out to someone we want to feel we need to feel some degree of compassion for them and we take jesus as our model now for jesus it probably came naturally because he was jesus he was god we may have to pray about it but the point is that the compassion that jesus demonstrates for the flock for the crowd here in this context in this miracle this needs to be uh, the compassion that we feel in our own lives for people that we want to minister so conclusions just to to sum this up in three brief points first of all not all ministry is miraculous uh sometimes we might be called to be part of healing of a miraculous healing we might be called to be part of deliverance as again as pastor david has preached on a lot of ministry is not miraculous it is simply caring many of the things that jesus did for people were not miracles they were just caring so we want to remember that yes we can look at the miracle we can find inspiration from this in terms of jesus power but we don't have to imitate it in order to to minister to others second effective ministry is holistic we want to think about physical needs we want to think about emotional needs we want to think about spiritual needs just to reinforce the point about the emotional needs you may look at someone and you may see very clearly how badly they need god in their lives but if they are scarred emotionally or they're scarred psychologically you're not going to be able to help them to see god until you help them to begin to deal with some of those issues similarly if they are very preoccupied by physical needs by physical wants you're going to need to bring some measure of relief for those wants before you can really share with them so effective ministry is holistic and finally ministry at all levels and in all contexts it's rooted in love and compassion and here again jesus is our example we i really believe that we whether we are leaders serving our congregation 
whether we are uh, just brothers and sisters in the church serving each other or reaching out to other people, we cannot serve, we cannot minister without love and compassion. God puts that love and compassion in our hearts to a certain degree, but if we find ourselves lacking in general or in terms of particular people, we pray to God and he will help to fill in the gaps. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the example of your son and thank you for what we can learn from him about serving you and about ministering to others. Help us whenever we want to touch someone else's life to understand their physical needs, their emotional needs, their spiritual needs, to be able to reach them with compassion and reach them with your love. That we can, even if we are not performing miracles of feeding thousands of people, that we can still perform the miracle of helping someone understand you better or find their way to you. We just commit each one of us to you and we pray that you will continue to guide us, to work in us, particularly during these difficult times of, of separation. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.